establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about the Psychedelic Bronze Age, a story of the West. We're going to revisit our favorite new segment where Dr. Deem clears up the fusion confusion. And in the second half, we're going to talk about sports in the climate era. We got so much to cover today, so why don't we just get into it? News that tells us more about what it means to be human are always going to rank high in this podcast. However, our first story shows us how the title doesn't really always do the story justice. You see, 3,000-year-old hares hold the oldest clues to about psychoactive drug use in Europe seems more like we're going to be telling a Bronze Age teen comedy than what the article actually tells us. So let's go a little bit deeper. Recently, a team found a cave on the island of Menorca off the east coast of Spain. In this cave was a chamber that was sealed since 800 BCE, containing human remains, some of which had their hair specially prepared and sealed in tubes made of antler and wood. And after testing these strands, they found that scopolamine and atropine, two compounds found in plants from the nightshade family with psychotropic effects, were in this hair, and they had to have been using these substances for at least a year fairly often. So it's not just contaminating the sample. This confirmed the long-held belief that humans were using psychoactive substances for a really long time, but also shed a little light on potential religious practices done by this group. So what do we, t- what do we think about these psychedelic Bronze Age folks? Just, just like ride and chill vibes in in the mediterranean i knew that the grateful dead was old <laughs> i didn't know they were this old and so yeah yeah they had all these uh these like teddy bears on the cave paintings right yeah they were all dancing right actually you know when i read the story i didn't think about the dead at all um which is shocking because it's usually the only thing i think about but it is a story about dead people and psychoactive drugs right exactly yeah <laughs> And you want to know what came to mind immediately? What came to mind was, was this Brendan Fraser? Is this Encino Man? Oh, Oh, man. (laughs) Yes. Never mind. I'm back on. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess what it all comes down to is this. These plants are available. Humans are smart. Humans get stressed out. I've never had the kind of stress that someone from the Bronze Age has experienced, right? Like if I, for example, break my leg... I'm probably not going to die. Oh my gosh. Right? Sure. Yeah. And so to each his own, right? I mean, yeah. whatever you need to do to get through the night, do it. Right. I'm just picturing them like, I'm very scared of everything out there. Like, I might touch this plant and die or eat it and get sick or something like that. But they're out there experimenting because they, they're just figuring it out. That's amazing. Everything, every plant is edible once. the question is is it edible more than once right presumably when fag dies because fag ate something that killed him like fag's descendants and relatives and friends aren't going to eat that thing that's right but when fag finds something that's going to make his hair dance on end 
everyone's going to eat that thing. Here's the the amount of pushback. I want to do a little bit of pushback about the these substances. May, maybe like uh, chill, chilling people out a little bit. Uh, the researchers did note other substances through this time period in different parts of the world that had like mild euphoric, uh, euphoric effects associated with them. They said that these two substances would make scarier hallucinations. Oh. Maybe not as uh, friendly. They're not associated with, with a good trip, I believe you would say. That sounds like me on any prescribed drug. It sounds like me when the upload deadline is coming up for this podcast and I still have like 20 <laughs> minutes of editing to do. It, it could be really interesting um, if there was any evidence that this was used for any religious practice, right? I mean, that's something that wouldn't be out of question by any stretch right. right i mean there are lots of cultures that use hallucinogens to help with vision quests and those sorts of things right and so it wouldn't be surprising to me if there was something in the culture this bronze age culture that sort of pointed folks down that route but we don't have any of that evidence it seems like right so yeah it's the downside of the bronze age right like we have evidence of things but those cultures were not quite advanced enough, at least the ones that they're looking at here, were not quite advanced enough to also have like some writing or, or things to go along with it. What they're kind of seeing in this particular instance that makes them think it may be religiously linked to the culture is that the bodies in which they found the compounds in their hair were specially prepared. They had um, like like some dyes uh, worked onto the hair and like the hair wasn't on the corpse it was on the, in these like in these tubes again could just be normal funerary practices and we're reading into it a little bit more could be uh that we have this evidence because the hair was prepared this way but it was used by everybody or it could point to some kind of ritual practice so right like you really want to say like oh this is evidence of religion on the island of Menorca, but it, it doesn't really say that. You're right. It's saying the potential is there for a maybe after more investigation and further discovery. Science is always evolving. Let's move from the east coast of Spain to the western half of North America and talk about some horsies. There are a million stories about the American West, but until recently, these stories were centered on the American settlers, usually of European descent, with indigenous groups lacking agency and a voice. But in our next article, we're focusing on the history of horses and their link to these indigenous communities. To start, it is commonly believed that horses originally evolved in the North American continent around 4 million years ago before moving into other parts of the world, but went extinct about 10,000 years ago. And to make it even more Eurocentric, it's also pretty widely believed that they went extinct because Native American groups overhunted them. But there's a lot of evidence showing that that's not necessarily the case, including this story. The most well-known story is told by the Spanish, placing indigenous horse use after the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 in present-day New Mexico. But oral traditions from some indigenous groups, specifically for this article, the Comanche, tell a story of the importance of horses well before the arrival of Europeans. And it looks like a new analysis of archaeological horse remains supports this tradition. Using isotopic analysis, radiocarbon dating, and DNA sequencing on horse bones from across the American West from museum collections. 
it now seems likely indigenous communities domesticated and used horses from the long-believed extinct line of North American horses for way longer and without the need of escaped European horses. So we're actually talking to indigenous communities. We're listening to their story. We're looking at the scientific evidence, and it turns out Europeans are not nearly as important as we thought we were. It's almost like when you have diverse groups and diverse voices, the story becomes more accurate and richer. Yeah, this reflects a really, really cool trend, in, especially in anthropology these days, but it's true in most of the social sciences. And I would hope that it's true in most sciences altogether, but certainly on the social sciences end. And that is involving the indigenous communities that one is studying in the research. Right. This was exciting because this was a partnership between an archaeozoologist, so someone who studies animal bones from archaeological sites, and a member of the Lakota tribe who is also um, an expert in, I believe, oral traditions. And so combining the two very disparate lines of evidence uh, and lines of inquiry to come to a much more powerful understanding of reality is really cool. I've served on several National Science Foundation grant panels over the last few years where this is a big topic of discussion uh, because National Science Foundation requires proposals to all have a broader impact for society involved in it. And um, when it comes to anthropology, one of the best ways to have a broad impact, a broader impact on the community is to involve the community that you're studying in the research and then have them have ownership of those results because it's about them. Yeah. Proposals that, that do that well do much better in the review process because it's not just about the bottom line science. It's about how is the science going to make society better. This is a really good example of the kinds of things that excite the National Science Foundation now and that really make science exciting um, as we move forward. Involving locals in the work about their local areas is really powerful. Well, in understanding they their expertise and also paying yes. them for this too. Right. I mean Absolutely. Right. That is experience, that is knowledge. We really fused the story of indigenous horse lore and uh oh man, I'm done. It's over. Hey Steffi, talk about fusion. <laughs> Dr. Deem clears up the fusion confusion. Also, news from my lab in the basement that's that's not frightening (laughs) that's where we keep our tokamak everyone has a tokamak in their basement that's where i keep my tokamak i know i get it i know yeah i think you call tokamak something differently (laughs) (laughs) so back to my tokamak okay so my experiment is called pegasus three we've talked about it before we can probably link to a couple episodes But I'm here to talk about how excited I am because we're going to start running again. We were funded to basically build a whole new lab to study innovative ways to start up future fusion power plants. We have been building this experiment for three years during a pandemic. And every I'm going to call this this is an artisanal bespoke experiment. Okay, there are like 80,000 parts. Okay, a lot of those are like custom-made screws, but a lot of it's like custom-made, manufactured metal 
magnets, everything. So you have to hand fit a lot of this, okay? So you can imagine how much you have to do and how how intense this is. So we, one of our major things that we were doing was constructing this high magnetic field electromagnet. Um, has to have a lot of current going through it, which means it essentially wants to rip itself apart when we run. So we had to really build this robust structure to kind of keep it in place. So we finally built all that. We built all new power supplies to drive those magnets. And we turned it on on Tuesday. And it works. And I am oh, so yes. excited. <laughs> Love nice. it. So now that we know the magnets work, we're installing the rest of the systems. So we'll have plasma soon. See, whenever I get something to work and then I start adding to it, it is inevitable that it will no longer work. Do you worry oh, about no. that? Don't say that. Yeah, I don't sleep at night. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, so this getting this magnet to run was the biggest technical hurdle that we had, to be honest. So going into it, because I mentioned there's so many stresses and strains, we tested a lot. We tested the power supplies individually. We tested a lot of the other subsystems independently. So the fact that we plugged everything together, because that's usually when you're like, oh, we got to shake out a bunch of problems. We had to shake out some things for like a couple days. And then when we turned it on and it just like worked. Like, that was amazing. Yeah, meanwhile, on the other side of the earth, literally everything that was metal <laughs> smacked against the ground, right? And you're like, yeah, it's working. Yeah, It's no, working. You bring up a good point. Um, before we turn on our magnets, we spent, we had several crews of people on our hands and knees looking for any bit of metal that could be magnetized because if it's near that machine and we turn on our magnets, it gets sucked in. I mean, you've probably heard those stories about like MRI machines. Yeah, like, right. I'm always terrified. Right? Don't bring any metal because it'll, yeah, because you there are horror stories of like stuff getting thrown into. So we have to worry about that. In addition, some of our, so essentially our experiment looks like um, a stainless steel vessel. And we do have some windows on it, so you can like look into it. And we have an ultra high vacuum environment, so there's no air in it. It's actually less air than outer space in our experiment. So clean. There have been horror stories of people like leaving a wrench in their lab, and the electromagnets get turned on, and it smashes through the window, which is super bad because we have really sensitive vacuum pumps in there that if they get metal in them, they trash the pumps. And then you, those are really expensive, and you have to replace those. So, yeah. And the other thing is because it's like high magnetic fields, we have our own power supply in the lab. Everything is locked out. Um, so we run an alarm, an audio alarm to clear everyone out of the lab. And then the doors are all magnetically sealed when we run. So yeah, there's a lot of safety that goes into that. And all of our team is trained in not only in first aid, AD, CPR, safety training for entering confined spaces where there's, you know, air limitations and stuff like that. So... But did you have to take lab safety? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Lockout, tag, tag out training, high voltage power supply training. <laughs> A lot of training. Yeah. Can you please list your... <laughs> All my training credentials. <laughs> I feel like we're IRB right here. Let's go through the, uh, let's go through the training. Oh, laser safety training. Because we lasers. use lasers in our lab too. We I had to do that once too. When are you guys going to come see the Tokamak? 
That sounded we like an actual them. invitation. That sounded like an actual, inv- not a, you know, whatever you can come. That, that sounded like I, a, when are you coming? Yeah, I, when are you that's... coming? I, I, I'm going to be way too in my head about metal on me. I wear glasses. I could ruin the entire experiment with no. like one Warby Parker frame flying across. The, I told you, <laughs> you can't lab. be in the room when it's right. running. You, you're not getting anywhere close to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also said, and I think maybe we can play back the footage where I said, that's lame and what's the point? Oh my gosh, that's, that's right. Tr- I do remember that actually. I this do. is an open invitation to anyone listening to this podcast. If you can find oh, me no, and email me flooded. and you want to come to Madison, Wisconsin, you can you can get a tour of my experiment. Man, if this yeah. doesn't become the most downloaded, you got you to gotta also bring this podcast with you. That's your admission. Right. If this doesn't become the most downloaded episode, people just don't care about fusion. The price of admission is just <laughs> one Science Night sticker. Yeah. Returned. Or a t-shirt. Or t-shirt. You know, anything from our merch store will get you in. <laughs> yeah, where can I find that, James? You can find that at cyanite.com slash merch. <laughs> Very good. You're steering the ship, Steffi. You can you can oh. send us to Adland whenever you Adland. want. Adland. I told of, you you're in charge. Speaking of Adland, has anyone seen my commercial on the Big Ten Network? Oh, Big I Ten have. Impacts? I have. Yes. Speaking of other commercials, here's a message from a podcast James thinks you will enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is JJ, the co-founder of Good Pods. If you haven't heard of it yet, Good Pods is like Goodreads or Instagram, but for podcasts. It's new, it's social, it's different, and it's growing really fast. There are more than 2 million podcasts, and we know that it is impossible to figure out what to listen to. On Good Pods, you follow your friends and podcasters to see what they like. That is the number one way to discover new shows and episodes. You can find Good Pods on the web or download the app. Happy listening. to this podcast, you know that two-thirds of us are long-suffering fans of America's pastime. And by that, we mean baseball not standing idly by as the world burns around us. There's something about the roar of the crowd, the crack of the bat, and the Phillies and Royals blowing yet another late-inning game. Baseball seems like this unchanging monolith with records going back well over a century at this point, but of course the game has changed a lot, moving from the dead ball era to the steroid era and beyond. The game played today is pretty unrecognizable to the days of Chuck Klein, Grover Cleveland Alexander, Richie Ashburn, Robin Roberts. I'm sure there were famous Royals too. And a new article from a team at Dartmouth College, originally published in the Journal of a Neurological Society, but really it's kind of been picked up everywhere at this point, talks about how warmer air created by climate change has created about 500 more home runs since 2010 with a lot of math and statistics that I do not understand to back it up. With that trend expected to increase as the climate crisis worsens. So when we think about hitting dingers as the world burns, and honestly, we can just talk about sports in the climate era, which is going to be the title for this episode. Don't you just love it when they say the title of the thing that you're listening to or watching? I do. 
I certainly do. I also love it when you bag on the royals for at every opportunity. I honestly couldn't think of a famous royal from the past. Uh, you know, my knowledge of the royals begins at 1980. I know nothing about baseball. Right. Well, the royals began in 1967, so there wasn't that much before that. <laughs> <laughs> and Steffi, don't worry. We got something in here for you, too. Good. Good. Prior to that, though, it Better. was the Kansas City Athletics. Prior to that, it was the Philadelphia Athletics. So oh, we do have wait. something in what common. What was that, huh? <laughs> That's right. I'm saying, well, neither one of us could hold on to that team. That's all I'm saying. What about the Brewers? We have a sausage race. You do. You do. And that's all that needs to be said. Yep. <laughs> yep. Actually, uh, the Brewers, the Brew Crew had the best, uh, in the 70s, had the best nickname for the team, Harvey and the Wallbangers. I don't remember who was Harvey, and I don't remember who were the Wallbangers, except that but that was just a cool name for catchy the- Catchy uh, enough. Yeah. I'll go. tell you what the Brewers do exceedingly well, other than sausage-based athletics- is their logo is fantastic right i am a sucker for like use of space to to do two things genius but when you realize that that catcher's mitt is an m and a b yeah change your life change your life that's right you probably if like you didn't see it before and we just said something and you're like then you'll look at the logo and you'll be like how did i miss that because it's so obvious once it's pointed out to you so actually, that's a really good segue into um, some obvious things that are wrong with this story. And that is, you know, everything is being made about changes in air pressure and the ability for a ball to get more lift with changes in the climate. And that may all be true. Oh, my gosh. May all be true. But yeah, I don't believe that's the reason there are more home runs in baseball What since 2010. I don't believe it has anything to do with climate change. It's not to say that climate change won't exacerbate the problem, but baseball itself has fundamentally changed over the last 20 years and the way that the game is approached. And that is not accounted for in this article at all. And as a baseball purist, it makes me very upset. That said, it makes me so upset that I don't even really care that much. Baseball is ruined anyway, since baseball destroyed itself this year by getting rid of the things that made the National League the superior league. And I say this as a fan of the American League, right? My team is an American League team, and that brand of baseball is inferior to National League baseball prior to 2023. Now, all of the game is crap. There's so much going on in what you just said. Also, unpack it for us. I don't understand most of it, but I do want to highlight climate change is impacting everything. And that is just scary. I'm just going to say yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yes, so. it's impacting baseball too. <laughs> and explain some of those ranty things that you just said. About right, how baseball got ruined and whatever. Yeah. Because I don't know. I don't follow it. So, I got to tell you, you know, I, 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 love, I love a good piece of hitting as much as you do. Like sla- taking what the pitcher's giving you and, right. and laying out a double, doing, doing like a, a hit and run or a suicide squeeze. Yeah. The suicide squeeze. The most exciting play in baseball. Totally irrelevant now. Well, I don't know. The bags are bigger. Steals are up. I don't know what that means. So, what is that thing? Uh, I'll go, go ahead. I'll explain. Baseball calm. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, a suicide squeeze is a bunt with a runner on third base who is okay. running for home plate as the ball is pitched, right? It's essentially a way to 
um, either steal home yeah. or put the ball in play just enough to get the catcher away from home plate so okay. that the runner can score, right? It I is understand that. Yeah. The problem is this. What makes it the most exciting play in baseball is that if the batter does not make contact with that ball and the third the runner on third base is running for, toward home, yeah. right? It's going to be a play at the plate, right? And a pitcher pitches a ball, you know, 80 to 90 to 100 miles an hour and a runner doesn't run that fast, right? Ooh, and so And so if that batter does not put the bat on the ball, that is going to be a sure, almost a sure out at home plate. But if they do put the bat on the ball, right, a run can score, and it's really exciting because everyone's hair is on fire when that's going on, yeah. right? That doesn't matter anymore. So baseball did several things to ruin baseball this year. What they did was uh, there's no longer um, there's no longer a difference in the way that um, the lineups are structured in the American League versus the National League. So prior to this year. Um, the American League had adopted in the 70s the designated hitter, which means the pitcher doesn't bat. There's an automatic spot in the lineup for someone who just takes at bats and doesn't play in the field. And the pitcher doesn't have to face a pitcher ever, right? Mm-hmm. But in the National League until this year, pitchers batted. Mm-hmm. And all right. Was it? Oh, see, I didn't even pay attention because it sucks. Oh. Like baseball has been ruined. Oh, no. And that's because um, there's so much strategy that goes into whether or not you pull your pitcher out when they're scheduled to bat in the next half of the inning, right? So if your pitcher is dealing, right? Your pitcher is throwing nothing but aces, right? And like no one's getting a hit, but you're, you know, you need a run. Do you pull your pitcher when the pitcher's scheduled to bat in the next inning? Or do you keep the pitcher in there knowing it's most likely going to be an out because pitchers just can't hit the ball, right? They don't spend their time hitting the ball. They spend their time practicing throwing the ball, right? Yeah. So what do you do? And that's been taken away now. The other thing that's been taken away is that a pitcher who throws high and tight to a batter, pushes him off the plate, never has to stand on the other side of that, right? So a pitcher who decides to brush a, a batter off the plate, right? You're too close to the plate. I want you to scoot back, right? You're getting too much of the plate with your bat, and that's not going to be good. I'm going to push you back. That pitcher doesn't have to stand there and take a 95-mile-per-hour fastball to push them off the plate. So they can do whatever they want. There is no there's no repercussions for, for moving you know, batters off the plate. It's just – that's just one of the problems. Then they made the bases bigger. What? They made the bases How much bigger? bigger. Yes, right. It's ridiculous, right? They made How the bases bigger? bigger. How much bigger did they make them? Just a couple of inches, I think, but enough oh. that um, that it will affect stolen bases, right? Like these bang bang plays. I need Do I just to know sound like a crotchety like percent percent big, <laughs> I was bigger, like say. ten to twenty? <laughs> so I'm sorry you all are listening to this and not watching the video because it is amazing watching James. React to Jason's yeah. <laughs> investigative I get the report on the history of modern day baseball. What do you What do you feel about kids on your lawn? I love kids on my lawn. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm fine with it, especially if what about if they play the... baseball on your lawn? That's fine. Come learn the real game of baseball, oh. and we'll, uh, we'll talk oh about it. Oh right? no! Anyway, he's an oak bat. And 
it might just be I'm a little salty because the Royals have started the season three and nine, and I'm not real happy about that. So I, I'm hearing we need a follow-up study that's proposing an interdisciplinary approach to understand the impacts baseball has had, or the climate change rules. These bases apparently are bigger. Yeah, I got the follow-up study right. It's already been completed, and it's titled changes in baseball and how it brought more joy to james in 2022 because in (laughs) may of last year bryce harper my hero uh tore his his medial collateral ligament uh which you know fans of baseball would know is that's the thing that makes you need tommy john surgery but since he's a a fielder so sorry medial collateral ligament of the elbow i think that's important of the elbow sorry yes yes yes. he tore his ulnar collateral ligament put that in oh man triple a would be right down my throat okay you want me to talk a little bit about the climate climate one one second one second because the nl had the dh he was able to still bat because he didn't have to throw and the Phillies won the World Series. And I was such a happy boy for such a long time. Right. So changes are good, Jason. I mean, I hear what you're saying, James, and I'll just counter that with, what does it feel like to know that your team lost the World Series and the Super Bowl this year? I, I don't oh. know what you're talking about. I checked out. Oh. I When they got in, I just turned the TV off. I walked away. <laughs> so sad for you. That was so, like the end, of, the end of Breakfast Club. I get I it. Hand up. I get it. I get it. Um, yeah. You and Judd Nelson. So yeah, right? let's let Steffi talk about actual science. Well, now. right, wait. So actually, to your point, Steffi, I've been ranting about how baseball has been ruined. But the bigger issue here is that, and so that my point was that it doesn't really matter that climate change is going to be affecting baseball because the the game is dead. But <laughs> just but, love that line. <laughs> that's the that, tagline. That said, there is going to be a an effect of climate change. I, I think that's clear. Right. I just don't think that the effect that we're seeing uh, an increase in home runs is because of climate change. But why don't you tell us how climate change might affect how far a ball can sail off of a bat. And then let's talk about why I don't believe that's true. Okay, fine. I love Uh, this. uh, I love that intro. I don't believe that it accurately reflects why there are more home runs in baseball. Okay, Let's put it that the, way. The first way you it's said like, that, it was like, I don't believe in science. But why right, right, right. I, <laughs> I definitely. Please, please, yeah. Please talk about this thing that you want to talk about. And also, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about turbulence. Okay. Let's do it. This is uh, turbulence is just float, fluid motion uh, around the ball okay it's characterized by chaotic changes in pressure and flow velocity of the air around the ball and so if you're having things change about the air it's getting denser it's getting warmer Um, that can change the flow of air around the ball and really these balls are going at very very high speeds so you're going to have that turbulent airflow regime around it and because of that you create a small wake behind the ball and it reduces the drag in the ball. So it can go faster or, you know, depending on the air conditions or slower compared to what you're normally used to. Um, So you've seen this in like soccer balls have a rougher surface and that actually leads to more predictable flight that affects the turbulent, the speed at which you get this, you know, flow around the ball. But softballs are, or these baseballs are a little bit smoother. So maybe it's not as predictable. So that can actually impact the way these balls are traversing through the air, both when you're pitching and then hitting them. 
And it makes a lot of sense, right? Reducing the drag on the baseball will allow it to travel further. But none of this discussion is reducing the fact that baseball is a drag. And it's because (laughs) of the way that it's played now, right? So beginning in the early 2000s with Billy Bean and his um, ascension to the general manager position at the Oakland Athletics, um, which is, again, back to the athletics. It all comes back to uh, Philadelphia and Kansas City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> having been former homes of the athletics at one point in their history. The way that baseball is approached now is very different. It all has to do with advanced statistics. And teams aren't constructed the way that they used to be constructed. The mantra used to be, get them on, get them over, get them in. And that was the idea that you get a runner on base in an inning, you advance that runner, even if you're sacrificing outs to get that runner into scoring position. And the whole goal was to get a run across the plate in an inning. That's what it was. If you got more than one run across an inning, in an inning, they called that a crooked number, right? Meaning that it wasn't a straight one, right? It was crooked. It was some other number. And that's good. Crooked numbers are good because crooked numbers are harder to get than a single run, right? Yeah. That's not how baseball is played anymore. Baseball is now played... Uh, by walking and by hitting the long ball. It's not by getting at a base hit and then getting that runner over by sacrificing outs to get that runner over. It's about getting on, not swinging the bat, or if you do swing the bat, you're swinging for the fences. That is why there are more home runs in baseball. It has nothing to do with climate change. Now, that said, maybe, maybe using climate change as an important um, underlying factor, we could see a difference in the number of home runs moving forward, but to explain the number of differences between now and between pre-2010 is not an accurate representation of the data, in my opinion. All of that is to say, I just, I love baseball and I hate it so much right now. <laughs> so let's look at what this story does well, and then we can we can wrap up with some other stuff. But... This story, like I said, is is everywhere. Like it's on every sports thing. It is it is all over the place. And it's getting people who usually only hear about sports statistics, stories, news, and events to hear about how climate change is affecting the thing that they really love. And maybe that moves the needle in some climate action. Um I feel like that's something you can get behind, right, Jason? Yeah, it's true. Climate change hitting you in the baseballs. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But this is like definitely, this is the most recent story, but it's not. I just put in climate sports and all kinds of stuff came up. There's so much. Yeah, including uh, FIFA. Everyone loves FIFA and there's Mm -hmm. definitely no dark side to it at all. None. None Um, at all. There's a great article on the conversation that I will link to because we do not have enough time to cover it in depth. But it was basically talking about how FIFA is, how soccer is being impacted by climate change because it is played in very warm parts of the world. uh, And those parts are going to be able to not like be suitable for athletic events, at least not at the times of the year that they're currently played. But then they doubled that up by like global FIFA and the way they approach their business is driving climate change so much because of all of the new constructions that they are requiring for world cup events um so it's like this this feedback loop of the things that they are doing are making the game that they are promoting less able to be played in the future so that's fun um (laughs) but here's where steffi is gonna shine 
Yeah. I also found an article about how a white tent in the British countryside is just getting too dang hot. And, you know, bottoms are getting soggy in the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> you know, chocolate chocolate showpieces are melting. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah. I'm just really worried. I'm really worried about the future of the GBBO. How does this affect your league? Are you going to be thinking about like what the forecast for that filming season is when you're when you're doing your picks? Yeah. So before, I've never actually included any climate considerations into my picks, but now going forward, I you know you go into the first episode, you got to see who's talking about the temperature in the tent, who's actually conscientious about getting their bakes in cold in the fridge faster so it actually can hold up when they're carrying it to the table to be judged wow. i mean who's got their head on a swivel right those custards aren't going to set up no no you hate to see it those chocolate you you like you said that. the chocolate show pieces they're not gonna they're not gonna stand up to they, they've had a cho- like hanging bakes before like are we is this the end of hanging bakes i don't know mm. I'm just glad we're talking about it. What is a hanging bake? I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> what is a hanging bake? They had a couple Ooh, now, where now you Steffi actually gets to like communicate. Yeah. It. Like, yeah. That's right. I Cut mean... down the jargon, Dr. Deem. Come on. <laughs> I mean, are they going to change the technical bakes now? They're going to limit their scope? Are They're not going to move out of the tent. They better not move out of the tent. If they move They're out of the tent, air GBBO is dead to me. There's not going to be lambs in the background anymore. Right. You I know what know. they need to do is they just need to make it like the big tent for the Cirque du Soleil where it's air conditioned. No, because I kind of like it when you watch the bakers and they take into account the humidity and how that impacts their recipe and their baking time. Like, I find that fascinating. Okay. All right. I stand corrected. If you can actually do that chemistry on the fly, that's that's impressive. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right. I stand corrected. Not about baseball, though. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> it's really getting hot in here. We've had some really good and important conversations in this episode. But I think the fact that we are talking about hanging bakes and soggy bottoms in Britain means that you've made it to the end of another episode. But don't worry. We've got more coming your way. So be sure to follow us on social media. My name is James, and you can follow me on Twitter at James underscore read three. And you can talk, you can see me talking about how great the DH is, and I love these new base paths. Jason, where can everybody find you? Ooh, you can find me on Twitter at OregonJM. And Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or Instagram at Starshipin. You can follow the show at SciComPod and visit our home on the web, SciNight.com, for past episodes, links to the stories we talk about and the people we talk to, and maybe like a supercut of Jason talking about how dingers are bad. And of course, our merch. There's a lot to see. You can see it all at SciNight.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. But until then, go Phillies! The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Your rant was That's amazing. A... You don't have to never great. apologize yeah. for that. <laughs> never apologize for that. Never put baby in a corner.